Thank you, Nathan. It's, uh, it's always really encouraging to see our young men stepping up, isn't it? And uh, yes, we've really clapped. He only gets one clap a time. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, last week I remember the, the young kids were running around in here and, uh, and it just did my heart good to see our young folk in church. And uh, likewise, uh, thank you, Nathan. It's good to have you on board as well. You'll be a real blessing. <clears throat> I was encouraged with David's comments during communion because I wasn't quite sure how to introduce this psalm. It, it, it's not a fluffy, feel-good psalm. <laughs> it's not a psalm that you kind of take home feeling really encouraged about necessarily. So I pray this morning as we unpack this psalm that it will both encourage yet also challenge you. And I pray if it does challenge you, that you will take seriously this psalm and that you will do business with God. Seek him over this message. Well, the book of Psalms, I hope you've been enjoying our time in the Psalms. Psalm 23, of course, last week. Uh, Ellen Craigenbrink uh, brought that. It was a great message. You may not know that the, the, the book of Psalms was actually, is actually written in, in five separate books. The book of Psalms is actually called the Psalter. So the Psalter is made of five books, composed of five books, I should say, and they, they, they roughly align with the Pentateuch, which Moses also wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and good on you. Good students of the word. And as we go through, you will see that this account, Psalm 90, which is the first psalm in the fourth book, lines up with numbers. Numbers. So we'll see that as we go through. It's a prayer of Moses called the man of God. And it's unique within the Psalter because it is not only Moses' one and only contribution, but it is the oldest of the writings in this collection. This psalm, this prayer of Moses, of course, was written not in a vacuum, but it had a historical context. And that context is most likely to have been written around or in excuse me, in the context of that failure of faith, as we call it, where Israel uh, uh, struggled uh, to believe the, the Lord in what he said about moving into Canaan land in Kadesh Barnea. And we read about that in that exodus, that wilderness account of Numbers 13 and 14. Do you remember the story as they, they, they got to the edge there and, they, and then they sent out 10 spies? And they went into the land and they spied it out and they, they did in fact, someone's nodding, well done. And the 10 came back and eight of them said, oh no, they're huge, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. But two of them, 
Caleb and Joshua said, Yep, they're big all right, if I may paraphrase. (laughs) Yep, they are big. But you know what? God's right. We can take them. We can take them. And so fear and doubt and distrust of God's promises took hold of the Israelites and they listened to the eight. And they disbelieved God and grumbled and moaned against our dear friend Moses. What happened was the entire generation of that nation was condemned to journey in the wilderness for another 38 years and to not inherit God's promised land because of their lack of trust and faith in what God said he was going to do. Sad thing was that even Moses, this man of God, he also lost his temper, uh, striking the rock in front of the nation of Israel, and he earned God's wrath, along with losing both his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. Life for Moses would have been disappointing, it would have been difficult, and perhaps even disillusionment may have been hard for Moses. Yet we see that even having come to terms with the fact that he's not going to be entering into Canaan land. Do you know what? Moses is okay with that. He's okay with that. Why? Because as he reflects on this wilderness journey, he realizes that he has a better dwelling place. One that surpasses any earthly land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Even back in Egypt under that brutal uh, treatment of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, God had been Israel's refuge. So how is it that this man... Moses has earned such a title, a reputation of a man of God. He spent the first 40 years in Egypt, pagan land. The next 40 years, he he lived in the wilderness of Midian as a humble shepherd, giving 80 years of relative security And stability. (laughs) But then his final 40 years, he was called into the desert. Leading what could only be described as a, a funeral march. Marked by whinging and complaining and rebellious people. He thought we were bad. People who didn't appreciate his leadership one little bit. They were going to stone him. They were going to pick someone else and lead them and take them back to Egypt. Back to our leeks and garlic. We can see that life was not easy for Moses. 
Over a million people died in the wilderness. A million people. They estimate that there was between 70 and 80 burials per day for 38 years. How'd you like to be the undertaker? Yet ultimately, Moses triumphed. And it's here in Psalm 90 that he shares his insights so that we too might find strength for our journey and so that we too might finish well. I'm sure you remember that quote from Ecclesiastes. We actually went through Ecclesiastes. Was it last year or the year before? Wonderful, wonderful book. It says, there is what? Nothing new under the sun. Nothing. And it's true because Psalm 90 deals with themes and life issues and attitudes that began right back with Adam and Eve and will continue to be relevant and puzzling for us right up until the Lord shall come again. And so Psalm 90 is the ideal psalm to help us to not only take stock of our lives, but to help us to reframe and to rethink our priorities in the light of God's eternal existence. I want us to see as we move our way through this psalm uh, that this heartfelt prayer of Moses today that there is one, a temporal thinking leads to temporal living. Okay? Temporal thinking leads to temporal living. Consideration of our way, that is numbering our days, leads to a heart of wisdom. And a heart of wisdom should cause us to cry out to God for compassion and help, but with a heart of thanksgiving. There's a key read together Psalm 91 and 2. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Looking back in Numbers 33, we read there are no less than 42 different places named where Israel camped. That's over one a year. So what did Moses mean when he said that you have been our dwelling place in all generations? Moses may have lived in many tents in many locations but in fact as we read in Exodus 33 7 to 11 that Moses would would always pitch a tent just off to the side of of Israel's encampment special tent and he called this the tent of meeting and that's where God would meet with Moses and they would talk like one man to another No matter where Moses lived, God was always his home. 
And really, this is the Old Testament rendering of of what the Lord himself said in in John uh, chapter 15. He says, abide in me. Abide in me. Dwell in me. Find your habitation in me. Excuse me. Apart from any other... Sorry. Apart from any other consideration, this really is a call, if you like. It's an invitation. Just come abide in me. It's an invitation from God himself to a relationship. And it's a promise of protection in that relationship because Psalm 91.9 says, Because you have made the Lord God your dwelling place, The Most High, who is my refuge. There's the promise. Moses very carefully here sets out his thoughts by first compiling a list of of God's divine attributes, then contrasts them by showing that everything that is true of God is not true of us. He is eternal, we are not. He is holy, we are not. He is all-knowing, we are not. He references scenes here from Genesis, and, and Dave's right, I'm sure that much of what was going on in, in, in Moses' mind was reflections from Genesis. His thoughts would have come back from here. And uh, in verse 2, he describes God in terms of his eternal existence along with his great creative power and his strength. And he does this deliberately to form a counterpoint. If you like, a contrast, a comparison to the ephemeral, the fleeting, the frail and transient nature of our human existence. In verses 3 to 6, Moses gives us three examples of what humanity's life experience is similar to. Verses 3 and 4. One, you return man to dust. Can you hear Genesis in there? You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, Three, four hours, gone. And so we can see this other allusion to Genesis creation account where God made man from the dust of the earth and at his command, we must return. This is clearly a statement of God's sovereignty, isn't it? Over man's days, over man's existence. We come into this world the moment he declares we should and we leave it not a second before he says, return. Psalm 90 verse 5 and 6, you sweep them away as with a flood. Gee, that's not a new vision for us here, is it? This is the 50th anniversary of the 74 floods. 
Anyone went through that? Yep. Horrendous. I, I didn't, but I've seen pics, and I'm glad I wasn't in it. And we've all seen floods, haven't we? Uh, pictures, rather, on TV of the, those tsunamis that go through uh, Japan and other countries, uh, mudslides in, in various countries of Africa. And the theme here is just one of hopelessness. The torrent that comes against people, cars, buildings, all destroyed before the flood. as though they were matchsticks. The, pa- the, the picture here is that we have no power to fight against it and the end result will be inevitable. Our third and fourth, if you like, examples are that they are like a dream. Like a dream. We all have dreams. But we can never remember them. They're fleeting. They come and we wake in the morning and I can't remember what it was about. Sometimes that's a good thing. Like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning and in the morning it flourishes and renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. Boy, don't know about you, but my grass has been growing like topsy lately despite the weather. But have you seen those arid areas? You see them in the outback sometimes and, and there'll be a shower of rain and, and the next day it just shoots up verdant green and then by the end of the day it just dries and withers, blows away. Grass, something that really does have substance. But because of the environment in which it grows, its life stamina can be short. That same, uh, that same thought is expressed in First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Oh, but praise God. The word of God lasts forever. In verses 7 through 11, we read what may well be a succinct account of the very reason why man's life is so short. Why his days are burdensome. And for the ones who aren't in Christ, why they are filled with misery and despair as they see their days drawing to an end. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our end, our our final demise is indeed a result of sin. And God's wrath against sin is the appropriate and righteous response of a holy and altogether righteous God. It's appropriate that sinful man sit under the wrath of a holy God. The soul that sins shall surely die. One commentator wrote, 
Man is mortal because God is angry. And God is angry because man is sinful. One scripture that has haunted, (laughs) yet I think benefited me from the earliest days of my conversion is, be sure your sins will find you out. Wow, I read that and I thought, eek, there's no hiding. Oh, we can sweep them under the carpet. We can make it look like it was someone else's fault. We can pretend it was like that when we got here. (laughs) Be sure your sins will find you out. Sin's effect upon humanity is so devastating that it can never be hidden from the light of God's holiness. You know, it's like a, a large stain on the front of a beautiful bride's wedding dress. The bride may be able to hide it for a little while, maybe with a, a posy of flowers, but all is stripped bare and laid open before God's piercing sight. Verse 9, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord God searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You can't hide anything from this God. Psalm 139, David says, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. He says, even in the darkness, it's not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The light of God's righteousness pierces the very thoughts that we have, let alone our actions, our minds, the intent of our heart. All is stripped bare and laid open before God's holy and righteous sight. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they tried it on. Did you read the story? Acts 5. Who can forget our friend Achan? Joshua 7. He went and stole the forbidden things from that city of Ai. He was told, don't touch anything in this place. Nothing. But he pinched some, I think it was a garment. He pinched some gold. He stole stuff that he shouldn't have taken. And he went and hid it inside his tent. He stuck it under the the, uh, carpet, you know, like we all do. Gee, there's some stuff under carpets, isn't there? No one will see it. It's going to be dark soon anyway. Aiken. These three lost their lives because they thought they could sin in secret. They thought God won't see. And sometimes today we think because we have a wrong opinion of God and a wrong idea of God, well, (laughs) he'll turn a blind eye. 
he'll let this one slip because after all, I went to church twice last week, morning and evening. Or maybe they just flat out don't believe in God. Spurgeon writes, Scripture, when it describes God's wrath against sin, never uses hyperbole. That is embellishment. He says it is impossible to exaggerate it. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In the same way that we cannot really begin to understand nor comprehend the depth of God's love and blessing towards his redeemed in heaven, so also our feeble minds can really not fully grasp the dread, the horror of God's righteous wrath against sin. You know that scene on Calvary? I can't find the words. Oh, we draw pictures and we read about it in books. God's wrath poured out upon Christ for me and for you. On July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, England, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon which resounded through the Protestant world. It was based on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, and it was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. This was a, a, a message which shook complacent Christianity to its core and, and revived a, a sense of godly fear within the congregations of professing Christians. You know what? I look out here and I know most of you. Unlike God, I can't see your heart. But I know, sadly, that some of you are not yet saved I know that some of you are not yet born again to a living hope. You don't want to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Someone said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere sovereign pleasure of God. So in reply to that question, who knows the power of thine anger? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said none at all. And went on to say that the wrath of God against sin is so immeasurable. It can only be compared to the love of God which in Christ surpasses understanding. Friends, this side of heaven, we will never know what it is to know the full wrath of God nor to know the full depth of God's love. Teach us to number Teach us to number our days. 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us, O Lord, in the light of eternity the significance and limited resource we have available in this gift of days. To number our days infers that we assign to it a value. We number those things that are valuable. If I gave you a $5 note, you would know that it is worth $5. Why? Because it has a certain value on it. To number our, our days means to give it value. And the Hebrew word here is manna. Same as the manna that came down daily. I don't, there's no relationship. But it means to number, to reckon, to assign, to count. There is a, an accounting reference in this, isn't there? And we must never be guilty of spending our days in unprofitable ways. No pun intended. But you may say, well, I'm a bricklayer. Oh, I'm just a, I just stack the, the shelves at Woolies. How can my life count for anything? Well, friend, you be the very best bricky you can be. And you stack those shelves in such a way that the employer will praise your efforts. You stack them like you're stacking them for Jesus. Both Colossians 3 and 1 Corinthians 10 tell us that whatever we do, whatever we put our hand to, do it as unto the Lord. Are you sweeping the floor? Sweep it for Jesus. Our days here on earth are days of preparation for eternity. And it's in the midst of the, the toils and the troubles of this life that we are sanctified. It's in the midst of this hardness of life that we are conformed to the image of Christ. If, if we live them in the light of God's grace. And if we live it in the light of eternity. We can be like the Egyptians. Oh, sorry, it's <laughs> not the Egyptians. We can be like the Israelites, can't we? Come against a problem and round the mountain we go. Oh, that we might learn. Learn to deal with the issues of life. Learn to see it in the context of eternity. Godly wisdom can only enter into the heart of man by divine application. It only comes by learning from the Holy Spirit divine values in light of the fallen world in which we live. James 1.5 says this. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Trapp writes, to live with dying thoughts 
is to die with living comforts. Verse 13, return, O man, how long? Have pity, oh, try again, return, O Lord, <laughs> how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. You've cried out, how long, Lord? How long do I have to put up with this sickness? How long do I have to put up with this treatment from other people? How long, Lord? One of the benefits of gaining a heart of wisdom and of living in the light of, of that uh, eternity is that like Moses, we will understand that there is nothing in this world, this side of glory which can fully and completely satisfy the restless heart. Nothing except the steadfast love of the Lord. Nothing satisfies the human heart like the steadfast love of God. The only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. This means that nothing will satisfy the human heart ultimately except God himself. Make us glad for, our, for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. It's interesting that Moses here only asks for parity. He only asks for a balance between good and evil days. Yet in the New Testament, we see that God clearly desires to lavish unlimited and eternal love and blessings upon his redeemed. God always outgives us. Whatever we ask of God, he doubles it and leaves us amazed. 2 Corinthians 4 and 17 says, for our momentary and light affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. Nobody wants to work in vain, to have their, the work of their hands disregarded or overlooked in any way, yet it's only the person who toils under the knowledge that without the Lord you can do nothing that will cry out to God for help in that work. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us. That's, that's relationship talk. The Lord our God. Are you able to say that? The Lord my God. 
And it also expresses, uh, expresses to God in humility that although we are totally unworthy of, unworthy of divine assistance, we're also utterly insufficient to bring about anything to pass of eternal value, of eternal merit without it. Someone said, satisfaction, gladness, success in work must all come from the right relationship of man in his frailty to the eternal Lord. But you see, none of this, nothing of what you've heard this morning is of any consequence. Nothing I've said up here this morning is of any relevance or value to you unless you're in a saving relationship with Christ. Unless you are living under that gracious favor of God. Because it's only through a saving faith in Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, which David spoke of earlier when we took the communion, that you can ever inherit the hope, the love, the purpose, the freedom, the life, and the forgiveness which God has for those who fear him. And so, if we are to number our days, we must first recognize that today, friends, is the day of salvation. Do you know him today? Is he your Lord and is he your Savior? Let's pray. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible scripture, this, this wonderful uh, passage written by your servant, that man of God, Moses. Lord, we thank you that these things were written beforehand for our benefit. And we can see, Lord, that without acknowledging you, without living our life in the, in, without the, in the context of, of, of eternity, thinking that we can live temporal lives, Father God, we, we, we know that this will not bring out an eternal weight of glory. I pray this morning that you will teach each of us, Lord, to number our days. Teach us, Lord, to value every moment and never be found saying, well, I'm just killing time just waiting for this to happen or that to happen. But Lord, to see the value of every day that you've given us is an opportunity to bring glory to you. Lord, I pray for those that don't yet know you here. I pray, Father, that though they may think that coming to church is a good thing and, and there may be merit in it, oh Lord God, I pray that you might extend mercy to them and draw them irresistibly to your heart. Extend grace and mercy, I pray, Father, that they too may know your love. Father, we commit the rest of our week to you. In Jesus' name, amen.